bucket and I stumble to the kitchen. We tackle the often uniquely but not always female dilemma of managing life, work, family, and self. I'm Maura Carlin. And I'm Christy Derrico. Here at The Balance Dilemma, we reach out to women and men to hear their balance stories. What worked, what didn't, and what takeaways they have to help improve our lives and achieve balance. Our guest today is Katherine Frankel. Catherine's inspiring journey began in Australia, and to many of us, it may seem like the road not taken. From trained lawyer to flight attendant to consultant on Australian equal opportunity legislation for one of the world's top employers to ballroom dancing entrepreneur, Catherine's done a foxtrot around the world. Bold and fearless are just two words to describe her, choosing to live the life she wants to live. Welcome, and thank you for joining us, Catherine. Thanks so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Can we start with growing up in Australia? Yes, absolutely. Wonderful place to grow up. Uh, I grew up on the northern beaches, so we had a 14-mile beach right in front of our house. We used to walk down the steps, and if there was a footstep in the sand, my father would be very upset and very free. It was definitely the childhood of run out and play, and when it gets dark, come home for dinner. Very American sounding. It was very Norman Rockwell, as yes. I talked about earlier. Even in childhood, you seemed to seek adventure. I did. My father was definitely an adventurous in spirit. My mother and my brother were the oppos- polar opposites. Loved to stay at home, definitely home homebound, and loved that fa- close being close to family. But I definitely took after my father. So from a very early age, I was ready to go out and grab whatever came my way. And you did that as a young teenager. I did. I was very lucky to have a wonderful French teacher who one day said to me, I think you could qualify for a scholarship in France if you'd like to. So I happily ran home and said to my mother, could I go to France? She thought I was dreaming in the future and said, yes, sure. I went back to my French teacher and said, my mother said yes. And uh, a couple of months later, I came home and said, I'm so excited. I leave for France in two months for a year. And my parents were horrified. I didn't know what was happening, but luckily my grandmother was living with us. And she said she made this happen herself. You have to let it go. And I took off for a year in France at the age of 14. Did you speak French when you went? I spoke schoolgirl French with an Australian accent, which meant no, (laughs) and arrived in a family that did not speak any English and went to school where all the lessons were in French. So it was definitely learning by immersion, and I loved everything. Every second of it. Really had a great time. There was no sense of fear. Or, I mean, what gave you the the nerve to just pick up? I'm 14 years old is pretty young. I think it's that thing of insanity works well. I had no clue what I was doing. And I remember the first time it hit me was I was changing planes in the Middle East. So I'm 14 years old in the Middle East with everyone wearing traditional Middle Eastern garb. All the announcements for the aircraft were made in French or Arabic, neither of which I could understand, and it was the first time I'd ever traveled by myself. So suddenly I had a moment there of, oh, what have I done? But uh, like most adventures, once you're in it, you just keep on going. You know, there's some things that when you talk to people who have achieved, I don't want to say greatness, but have really pushed the boundaries of success and, and 
making a lot out of their lives. Study abroad at an early age is one of those things that I have heard people say they have gone and embarked upon this experience that it's not for everyone, but the people who have done it definitely go on to do things that are interesting and, and you're in that category. But uh, so that was high school. That was high school. And but you had a goal even back then about travel. I actually made that goal while I was away. While I was away, I was so enjoying this experience of being in a different country, being in a different culture, hearing a different language, eating different food, uh, with every minute of normal boring life suddenly being made exciting by those changes, that I set a goal at that stage to visit a new country every year of my life. You got the travel bug. I got the travel bug early. I have to ask. And so far, so far, so good. The problem is now that I'm getting older, my poor husband, you know, we've been traveling all year, but we've been to the places. We get to December, I'm like, oh my gosh, everywhere we went this year, we've been before. So I'm suddenly going through, I'm like, how does Bolivia sound? He's like, what? (laughs) So the pandemic put a little crimp in your new place every year, huh? Uh, No, it didn't stop me. Still got my new place in every year. Wow. Well, we're going to we're going to get to that. Uh What I want to get to is tell me about college. You went to college in Australia and going into that experience, did you have a mindset of what you wanted to study? My father had been an attorney. My grandfather had been an attorney. My brother is an attorney. So definitely it was in the blood somewhere. But interestingly enough, we all went into law and then either didn't practice. I never practiced straight law or changed halfway through so my brother happily changed to agricultural studies halfway through my father practiced for many years and had his own practice but eventually went back to university and did archaeology and went Hmm. on archaeological sites so definitely that's in the blood and i completed my law degree and was um got my barrister's admission to the supreme court in australia and then flew as a flight attendant the day after I graduated. How many years does it take to become a lawyer in Australia? I did five years. I did an arts law degree, so I did the full five years. And then you you uh, touched upon what we're here to find out about. You, you study to be a lawyer. You're, you're doing uh, you know a little Reese Witherspoon in, uh, uh, what's that movie called, uh, uh, with the blonde hair? No, oh, Legally Blonde. Legally Blonde. You did a little bit of that, and then... You went and became a flight attendant. How, how did that happen and how did you make that decision? I had the travel bug, as you said, very early. And while I was slogging away at the law, law degree, I saw a, a job application for Qantas. I'm like, oh, why not? You can always say no afterwards. Applied and then went through very rigorous interview process. At that stage, that was a very sought-after position. So we went through level after level of interviews. And finally, they said, you've got it. I was like, okay. I'm, I'm off and I could always come back to law and that's sort of been my philosophy. If something wonderful comes up along the way, I'm not going to say no to it without having thought, really thought it through. Is this something I'd like to do? So were you up front with them about the fact that you were a lawyer or was it something that you hid in that No, process? I was up front with them and one of the big questions that came up time and time again in the interview is how long are we going to keep you as a flight attendant if you have a law degree? So that was definitely something that came up in the questions, but I, I sort of managed to talk myself through that. I want to know what kind of reaction you got from people when they said, oh, I'm graduate law school next week and I'm going to be a flight attendant. My funny story about that was I was sitting next to somebody in my law graduation and he was um, a little bit of a snob about the law degree. And he, so he asked me, where was I going to practice? And I said, oh, I've got a job with 
this airline. And uh, he said, oh, I didn't know their law department was really strong. And I said, no, actually, I'm going to be a flight attendant. And he was horrified. Like, he, he actually brought up waitress in the sky, I think was his words. <laughs> you know, that brings up a, qu- a good question. What was the breakdown in law school when you became a lawyer? How many w- men in the class? How many women? It was still predominantly men. So I would say it was probably at least two thirds men. Hmm. Interesting. And, you know, they put you down in the directory as uh, they probably just put the corporate word and they show where you went instead of saying what you were doing. So when I traveled a lot when I was younger, I often met Australians who are essentially on six to 12 month trips. And I just recently did some reading and it did. It seemed like this is actually a quote from this article. Australia is a nation of enthusiastic travelers. It's one of our defining national characteristics. And it goes on and said how, you know, COVID has been difficult uh, for, for Australians. But that, you know, around normally at any given time, around a million Australians are living and working overseas. So my question is, do you think the spirit of adventure was part of the Australian culture you know, notwithstanding your father who adventured and your mother and brother who didn't. And do you think that had any effect on you? 100%. It's definitely if you're brought up with something and see other people doing something that sounds outlandish maybe to other cultures or countries and you see it all the time, it's a lot easier for you to go that path. Australia is a very isolated continent. We have no common borders. We're an island continent and we're far away from most other countries. So if you're traveling, you usually go for a long time. And I always say never ask an Australian, tell an Australian they can come by and stay with you because they could stay a lot longer than you would expect. <laughs> right. So this, you did the uh, Waitress in the Sky for a couple of years, I which I, I know was well beyond just a Waitress in the Sky, although that's another good skill that a lot of successful people have had, waiting tables, uh, myself included. But then you went on to something else that was uh, in the realm of the legal interest, and that would be working on equal opportunity. Tell us about that. I did. So uh, while I was flying, I was actually, there were two unions, one that was very cooperative with the company and one that was a little more feisty. And we're going to get right back to that in one minute. Thank you. And we're back at The Balanced Dilemma, talking with Catherine Frankel. So, Catherine, before we took our break, we were talking about equal opportunity legislation. First of all, before we get into your experience, what is that? What does that mean when that came about? And what what time period are we talking about? We're talking about the 80s. So, Australia came into the legislation a lot later than the United States. And we definitely were learning from what was happening in the United States. But it took us a lot longer. We're definitely a macho or were a macho society that took a little bit longer to come around. But Macho, I like that word. Mm. <laughs> we, we still had separated bars, the ladies' lounge and the bar. Mm. So, you know, we were way behind where America was when that legislation came in. Well, I, I, we do want to get into this. I uh, studied abroad in Ireland, and when I was there in the late, uh, in the 90s, early 90s, they also had a men's lounge that women were not allowed to go into. It was strictly men. So I don't know if that's still a practice, but whatever. So... Or equal How did you end up in that doing that? I mean, you were a flight attendant. Right. So I had been working for the U- flight attendant union and had got to know the chief executive very well and the, the senior management. And he and they knew my background of law. And when the legislation came in, he came to me and said, listen, you have a legal background. You know our frontline customers and you know our operations. You would be the perfect person to come in and, and try and interpret this legislation in a way that would still work with our business. So what did this early uh, legislation seek 
to achieve. We say equal opportunity. Who was involved? What opportunities were you uh, tr- were they trying to achieve through the legislation? At that stage in the eighties, it was fairly wide ranging. We'd had previous um, legislation trying to protect the rights of women, trying to not discriminate on the basis of, sort of color or race. This became very, very wide ranging. Then you couldn't uh, discriminate on the grounds of either sex, race, illness. Weight, for example, was a big one for us, um, funnily enough, in the airline. And it was very far-reaching, modelled on the American legislation. So can you give us any examples of things that came about while you were involved with this? There were so many interesting things coming in. So, for example, our engineers had all been there since they were 16, 17, coming in to the the airline and had worked their way through they were used to only being in a male dominated airline industry so when we started saying we don't have enough applicants for our engineering positions to keep the business going as the business expands we need to look at a broader market here and the broader market means bringing in female techs as well there was such pushback they hadn't worked with women they didn't know how that was going to work they didn't have bathrooms major things and minor things became a, a big issue and we had to really go through that in a lot of different ways. Right, and before we came here today we were talking about a really interesting news story that you told us and this involves the Olympics. As I was driving here today and I was thinking that we may be talking about equal opportunity the head of the Japanese Olympic Committee made a comment that there should not be women on the board of the Olympic Committee because they talk too much. <laughs> so, and if they did come in, they would have to put time limits on how long the women would speak or the meetings would go too long. Wow, should I implement that in my house? That's very interesting. <laughs> but he's getting pushback. That's the great thing. Now, the, the bad thing is, okay, 40 years, 50 years after legislation first came in, we're still having this conversation is sort of daunting. However, the great thing is it is coming up on the news. There's pushback and there's actually calls for his resignation. So in the other arena of uh, workers in the airline industry, the waitress, uh, the waitresses, here we go, the airline uh, stewardesses or flight attendants, flight attendants. There we go. We're predominantly female. Were there any changes that allowed that to diversify or how did that pan out with uh, So it was an interesting thing. One of our biggest issues or two mainly were age discrimination for females. The female flight attendants were being asked to retire at 35. And the reason for that from the marketing people was they wanted young, pretty flight attendants who would compete with Singapore Airlines and the Asian Airlines. To cater to the male business business traveler. 100%. The males were allowed to stay on much later than that. That was one major issue. And, of course, highly discriminatory and incredibly problematic for women who'd made that their career and suddenly were out in the cold. The second thing was weight. And, again, that came back to this marketing of we're competing with Singapore Airline and Thai Airlines and all of those. Uh, we don't want fat female flight attendants was a huge one that we really had to navigate our way through. And the weight wasn't an issue for the men either? No. So it wasn't a matter of not fitting down the aisles? No, it was not a matter of not fitting down the aisles. It was looking terrific in your uniform and being an attractive force for the male, male business travel. So this job took you around the world. You had opportunities to continue your passion of traveling, and it also afforded you financial independence. So you were doing uh, this position through your 20s. How, how did you fare in your economic status while you had this uh, uh, job? 
great. I mean, it's any 20-year-old that goes into a professional position now suddenly has the new money that they want to spend on everything. So you go through the first thing of buying everything in every country you go to and bringing it home and seeing nothing works when you take it out of its environment. Uh, And then I was lucky again. I had a really great role model in my father who was very clever investor young, and I started investing very young. There's something I've always been curious about. If you're a flight attendant, do you actually have your own home or do you did you still live with your parents because you were never home no i had my own home in fact we had a wonderful time i've got to tell you that that stage on that airline conditions were wonderful i worked only 30 percent of the time because you have to get a certain amount of time off between flights i was paid a hundred percent of the time because i was either on standby or it was required leave and you were paid very well plus you were given a per diem travel allowance and all your hotel accommodation was paid for so surprisingly enough in those days anyway international flight attendants did very well wow so you started investing young i did and uh i believe you owned your own home early on i did so you you really were independent Yes, I'm very young. I decided to save and I bought a, an investment property and rented it out very young. And then I sold that a little later. And I'd always been, as I said, had a role model that was saying put some money in the S&P equivalent. And I would put it there and leave it. And it did me very well. And it, to this day, to my nieces and any young females and males around me, I always say, just start putting a little bit away, putting it in something safe and just leave it there. Right. Compounding. Before yep. we go to her next adventure, why don't we talk about your motto? Because you do have a motto. I do. Um, so early on, I was always a huge reader. And I read the story of Helen Keller, who, if everyone doesn't remember it, that was a, a deaf mute child. Blind uh, also. Blind also. You're right. And to her great benefit, she would would have been locked away in a dark dungeon at that time, and she had a beautiful caregiver who really encouraged her to be everything she could be. And as I was reading her book, it struck me that her motto was, life is either a daring adventure or it's nothing. That blew me away. Just it, It touched my soul in everything I felt, but that it came from someone that faced all those difficulties in her life and could still say that was wonderful. I love that. All right, we'll be back after the commercial break. This is The Balanced Dilemma. We're talking with Katherine Frankel. Katherine, you ultimately moved on from that work with the airline. What happened next? I, When I had been flying as a flight attendant, I had met a fabulous older woman, an American woman, on board, and we'd got off in Hawaii. Just hit it off, and she asked me to have dinner with her, asked me about my background, and then said she was working on a peace plan in the U.S., in New York, and asked me if I would come and work with her on the peace plan. So, again, fabulous, wonderful opportunity How for an adventure that just sounded perfect. And I negotiated three months leave at that stage from the airline and went to work in New York with this woman on her peace plan. So that gets you to New York. Did you stay in New York after that? I went back to Australia temporarily, but yes, it grabbed my heart. The moment I saw New York City, I was like, this is for me, 100%. So what got you back to the United States I guess for good. Yes, I had. I married. I met in that three months an American man. He followed me to Australia when I went back, and eventually, after several years in Australia, we both decided to come back to the U.S. full time. Hmm. Now, you didn't stay in New York. You went to warmer climates, hmm. and you, you ended up in Arizona. 
I did. So after working for a few years in New York, I went to Arizona and bought a small business there, unknown business to me. It was actually a franchise dance studio. Let's just step back for one second because you ended up in Arizona on a vacation. I did. So I went down on a vacation, uh, happened to be exposed to this dance studio saw it and thought this is an interesting business model and opportunity it was losing four hundred thousand dollars a year when i saw it it'd been open four years and for some reason i saw a huge potential there and thought it would be good to buy a business so are you a professional dancer no i'd always danced but far from professionally have you run businesses before no (laughs) so what gave you the confidence or the guts to just say oh i can do this i don't know i still remember to this day and it's decades later signing the day of signing the contract and purchasing it for a large amount of money and the pen in my hand thinking should i really do this the moment i signed it that all went away and it was just like okay let me get to work so what did you see in this that made you do it uh, I was a little business that was in a great space. California was having earthquakes at that stage. A lot of Californians were moving to this area. There wasn't a lot to do. It seemed to me like this would be a good opportunity. And the business model just looked interesting to me. And I love to dance. So I was Even though they were losing a lot of money at the time by people who knew the industry. Yes. In fact, I went to a family friend to look over the financials and he said, do not do it. And I did. How did you use any uh, self-help material? How did you learn what running a business? You can't make it up. There really are skills involved and there's a learning curve. How did you learn that? The great thing with a franchise business is there are definitely people there to help you. So there was definitely some mentors in the organizations already. There's definitely a procedure for doing things that's, that's very helpful to a new business owner. So that was definitely a big help. And then I read voraciously. So there wasn't a day that I wasn't reading some sort of book that could help me in some way in the business. So what kinds of books were these? So I had to run a training program. I had 20 staff all in their 20s and I required them to come in for an hour's meeting five days a week and they were not paid for that. So to get them in there, I had to make it really fun, really interesting, but still help me achieve the business goals. So I read mainly self-help books and motivational books or something relating to what we were doing that day. So I might read one day something on uh, the seven human needs was an interesting one for me. Harvard had put out a study about what are the seven human needs. And I thought, wow, if we could meet all seven of those needs in this business, why would anyone leave us? Can you, what are the human needs? Have you so, haven't heard of this? All right, this has been decades now, and I don't remember all of them, but I remember uncertainty. So we all as a human need some level of uncertainty in our life to keep it exciting. Another one is certainty. We all want some structure in our life. Another one was growth. Another one was contribution. We all need to contribute to different things. And unfortunately, now the rest are, are deserting me. But those, the, the great thing was we found very much that all of those seven needs were very helpful both in sales both in being good people both in making people wanting to stay in our organization for a long time and stay with us and to make sure everybody who came to us got what they ultimately wanted did you have at the outset an idea of how long you wanted to stay in this business like for example sometimes people buy property and they're intending on flipping it 
were you intending on selling this business or did you see yourself moving to Arizona, kicking your feet up and having this new lifestyle? I knew Arizona wasn't for me forever. I definitely was a New York girl at that stage. So this was a temporary diversion again. I, I didn't set a set time, but what I did do, which I really helped me in this learning curve was I negotiated a deal, which was I would manage the business for one year at a very reasonable rate for the owner. And I negotiated that if the business got to $250,000 profit, which was a huge swing from 400000 loss, that she would discount the purchase price by X amount. If I got it to 500000 in the first year, she would discount a little further. If I got it a million dollars in the first year, she'd discount even further. And it was only a win-win for both of us should that happen. We did do very, very well in the first year. I was able to buy a discounted price. And, of course, by that stage, I'd had a year's learning curve in the business. Right. So what, where did you get the idea to come up with that type of option contract where you had uh, these? I think that was my legal play and, and definitely my time in the airline working and negotiating for the unions and other things all came into play. So it's that's interesting thing that whatever path you go on, if you pull all the information on the lessons you've learned, whether it's been in business, at home, uh, on your road traveling, all of those can come together and support you in whatever you're doing later on. Yeah, so you never regretted your law degree as something that you Not couldn't incredibly use? incredibly helpful. I wouldn't have got to New York without it. That's what the woman who had the peace plan loved about it. I wouldn't have got to work on the equal opportunity legislation. That's what the CEO thought was helpful. And I wouldn't have um, been able to do, negotiate all these contracts in my own business. And even though I wasn't doing straight law, and even though you didn't need a law degree to do those things... By others, it was definitely seen as helpful, and I definitely used it as I went along. So how long did you run and own the dance studio? Uh, four years. So one year of managing and three years of owning. And then you sold it? I did sell it. So we were very lucky at that time. Great timing, hard work, great team. We became number one in the country, uh, then in the world on that franchise level, and I was able to sell it while it was number one and move back to New York and get paid out over a period of seven years. I just have to ask, and how's your dancing ability? <laughs> my dancing ability was way better after owning the dance studio, <laughs> although I have to say I worked my butt off and uh, didn't get in near as much dancing as I would have liked to. Yeah. I'm sorry. The, no, I liked that. I mean, the, 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 and this is why this business, you uh, it, it was a good investment because dancing is extremely popular, as we've seen from with these new shows that have been wildly successful on TV. So you moved back to New York. And what did you do with yourself? Did you go into a new business, new pursuits? So I came back deciding that while I had learnt more by having staff than in any other sphere of my life, including university, I wanted at that stage to be a little freer to do what I want to do and that anything I was going to do from then on, I wanted to be transportable, to be able to do it well into my 90s and on and with no staff so that I wasn't tied down. So how did you know or determine what you wanted to do? Well, I that's I really put some thought into that. So I was really clear about what my parameters were. What did I, I want to do something I loved? I want to be able to do it always and love it. And I want to incorporate my interests into it. And so, did it matter whether you knew whether you were good at it or not? No, absolutely not. Because well, that's I, very interesting yeah. because many of us pick to do things that we think is our natural ability. Yeah, I, I figured I could learn. And I think by always going by the seat of my pants in the past to then, I had got a, a, ser- a, a comfort level that said, if you really apply yourself, if you really want to learn it, you can and you can do anything you want. So I loved travel and I loved reading and writing. And I decided I was going to combine those. And in fact, I was employed by the franchise owner 
to write a textbook on how I had turned the business around to become number one. So I was able to write straight away and I also did trips for the dance studio overseas. Catherine, another saying that you uh, told me that I love and, and we've been talking about it a lot is say yes to everything in your 20s and you complete the rest for me. When, when do we say no? And say no, get, start learning how to say no in your 40s right. and on. Because one of the things I see is that uh, women particularly, but also men become very overburdened as they go, their responsibilities increase and they feel like they have to say yes to everything. Yes, I'll drive the kids. Yes, I'll be on the PTA. Yes, I'll be a sports, uh, sports mom. Yes, I'll... Whatever it is, and it becomes overwhelming, and you end up with a life you didn't want, you don't like, and you're not having fun with any of it. But saying yes to everything in the, the early years of your education and your work gives you experiences that those doors might be closed to you at another time. 100%. You take risks. 100%. And at that stage, you don't have the responsibilities that you have later. So why not say yes? And I have to say, to this day, I'm a yes girl. So if I haven't done, if you ask me to do something I haven't done before, I, the answer is going to be yes. This is The Balanced Dilemma. We're talking with Catherine Frankel. Catherine, hearing your story, how you progressed from one place and stage, on some level, it looks like Life took you where the wind blew. But I suspect that's not how you would describe it. I think that we're all offered opportunities along the way, no matter what path we're on or where we come from. And it, our, our life is determined by what we decide to say yes to and what we decide to say no to. And then what we decide to do with those opportunities. So definitely I was presented with some wonderful opportunities along the way. However... I said yes where other people might have said no. And then once I was exposed to that, I maybe decided to do something with that. So I've always been very thoughtful still about what I love to do, what I wanted in my life, what I didn't want in my life. And my yes, no decisions were predicated on that. As opposed to a specific plan that this is what I'll do at this age and this is what I'll do at that age. Yes, I, I sort of had some of that. I always, I'm still a planner and I still goal set and I still have things I want to achieve and do in certain spheres. But I will be open to something coming to me that's different from that path and, and make a decision whether that's a path I prefer at that time or not. So one of the decisions that you made is not having children. And I will say that you are a first guest who doesn't have children. Was it a conscious decision? I never said I was not going to have children. Uh, and definitely uh, through my career choices and my travel, I got to an older age before I thought about it. And then my thought on it was this. When I see mothers, I am in awe and fathers of what they do for their children and the thoughts and the planning and everything they have to do. And I felt that I should only do that if it was something my life would not be complete without. And that was not me. So for me, that decision then was made on that on that basis. And I, I, can't, I really hesitate to ask this question. Um, do you have any regrets about that? No, I really don't. I, now, I'm l very lucky. I've been exposed to many kids, my nephews and nieces, friends' kids, my godchildren that I am very involved with. I definitely mentor young women as well. I'm in the state mentoring program with my husband. So we're very involved still with children and grandchildren, babies, and we love our time with them and enjoy it. But for us, no, that's plenty, and we got what we need and we love from that and would love to do more of it going forward. But, no, it's never been a regret. And I just want to as background gives some research that this is actually a trend uh, more families couples choosing not to have children 
uh, birth rates have steadily declined on the statistics I last saw were between 2014 and 15. And there's expected to be an even bigger drop during the pandemic. Um, part of it is actually they can't even estimate because they think that there have been lower levels of sexual activity as well as the school closures and uh, closures of daycare centers. Um, but it's still a question that's asked of women and generally speaking, not asked of men. Amy Blackstone wrote a book called Child Free by Choice. And she put in the book uh, in an interview, she was asked about this and said, men sort of get a pat on the back and there's more joking about, aren't you glad you dodged this bullet? Um, and women, you can't, no mother can really say, I regret having children because you don't want your children to ever hear that. And I, <laughs> But I, it made me wonder if there are people as much as might regret not having them, might regret having them. Well, there's challenges both ways, and this is something that, that we discuss. And uh, you are a planner, even though you're spontaneous. You have had a life where you uh, you go into something, you analyze it, and you implement Tell me about meeting your husband, because I have heard this from other friends that um, they got to a point and they decided that they wanted to share their life and they implemented a plan. And now for busy working people, there's all sorts of resources like uh, social media dating and so forth. How, how did that work for you? So I came back from Arizona to New York and didn't know anybody in New York at that stage and a friend of mine said, do you want to go online? I'm online dating. Do you want to do it? It was very new at that stage. I said, okay, I'll go on, but I'll go on under your name and have a look because she already had an account. We went on and looked at what was out there. <laughs> and uh, my husband happened to be one of three gentlemen that I went out with at that time. And his one of the, the statements in his profile was he loved to travel, but not with organized groups. I was like, oh. Sounds right. Like and he was an entrepreneur. Both of those were appealing to me. So I dated all three men for a while. I had a great experience <laughs> online dating. Uh, it worked very well. And my husband won through no no doubts about it. And uh, we dated for two years and got married a year later. Mm, and, and your wedding was super fabulous in uh, New York City Church. It, it was. We actually got a cathedral that was a universalist church and let us turn us into a nightclub. So we had a Harlem choir singing the directions and what to do. And we did a party with a wedding attached. It was great. So we haven't gotten to what you do with your time now. Right now, one of the things, as you know, that I spoke about earlier was I always loved to read and write. So I went back to Sarah Lawrence College, and they have the oldest writing school in the United States. Started taking courses there in and loving it. And I'm now very involved in writing two books. I had previously done journalism while I was flying. I did freelance journalism and uh, also worked for a newspaper here in the United States when I was here. So I was used to writing. But... You're writing novels. I'm writing novels now. Which is different. Totally different. No deadline, which I love. Can do it any time of the day and night, and I'm really enjoying it. So you're it. writing about somebody who's traveling? <laughs> I'm actually not in this one, although I do have one based on travel. I'm writing a tween book, which is funny seeing I don't have kids. And the other one is a murder mystery. Yeah, it's really funny you say that, because we had another author on who wrote a series of books about summer camp, and she had never been to summer camp. Yeah, she knows camp. Eileen. <laughs> That's oh. right. You've got, you got to have a very vivid imagination if you're writing. <laughs> So it all works. <laughs> and, you know, the one thing I want to uh, touch upon with your relationship with your husband, Carrie, and something that we discuss here at The Balanced Dilemma is fulfillment individually. And you come across as a person that 
does have strong personal fulfillment. And sometimes that can be hard in a relationship. There can be, you know, uh, a seesaw a little bit. One is not feeling as fulfilled while the other one is being uh, taking care of things. And Carrie owned a business, which she sold. How has that those dynamics worked in your relationship? I got very lucky. He's a very, very evolved male. And look, I got married. This is my second marriage. So I was a lot older. I was financially secure. I had no reason to get married unless we were both going to make each other's lives better. And he was in the same same place. So unless we were making each other's lives better on a daily basis, it didn't make any sense. And we did. So we're great about saying whatever makes you happy, you go do. Of course, with some restrictions on that. But I definitely I would, for example, while he owned his business, I would go away for a month at a time to live in another country by myself because he couldn't leave the business for that long and he would come and join me at the end of that for a week to 10 days and that worked great I got my travel fix he got some trips with us and we had a great time so we really let each other be wow so our last so we actually should just well, do a little go ahead christy you know my favorite thing to talk about is what we've been working on off uh off the mic i was going to say off scenes but <laughs> this is this is not uh, televised um has been our website and social media that everyone should check out and that's the balance dilemma.com and our next show will be a pre-recorded segment uh with stefan kaczynski who and the title is do Car- equal careers equal equal balance and that's similar to what we're discussing here and stefan we had a great talk with him and he was very upfront about his decision to take paternity leave and how that worked for him and his wife i was even discussing it with my husband last night because there are stigmas around paternity leave and as my husband and i discussed maybe that would have been made things a little easier for us if we had taken made different choices when we had maternity uh, paternity leave issues come up and uh, Stefan really gave us some wonderful insight that uh, how it enriched his relationship with his children and it, it's a great segment and it was an interesting discussion because he's actually the first man I knew who took paternity leave right and the other question of course is he and his wife being teachers in Westchester two careers relatively equal hours income and responsibility does that give you balance so now that we have a few minutes you just took a great trip where did you go we just went to Pakistan. Uh, the bad thing to get there was both my husband and I had to have COVID because we ended up with antibodies so we could travel. The great silver lining on that, which I always look for, is it meant we could take off. We did. So we just spent two weeks traveling through Pakistan, which was fantastic. And we uh, planned it all out and had a, a driver there and a local guide. And it definitely, for anybody who has the adventure spirit uh, ready to go, go. It was really something to see. Wow. And there are some photographs from your trip. And the tell me some of the other countries that you've traveled to. You've sent me a few itineraries that are in my dreams that I hope to uh, follow. So we've got, I'm trying to do as many big adventure trips as we can while we still can. So we've done recently Bhutan, which was incredible. We went to the base camp of Mount Everest in wow. Nepal. I've done a lot of trips to India, uh, all over Europe, Ireland we were in just recently, we were in Alaska. And one little tidbit that I, I love that you uh, you shared with me. Your husband says, just take me where you will. He doesn't demand an itinerary and he's very flexible. He's completely trusting now. So he knows that's something that I go into, I investigate, and that I'm thoughtful about that he would love as well as me. And we just have a great time. We're, we're good travelers together, which is fantastic. Yeah, that sounds like a good match. It, match made in heaven. 
Wonderful. And um, all of the show notes will include the books Catherine has recommended. Uh, as and you we- know we're going to be looking up the one that she talked about and couldn't remember the seven essentials. Absolutely. <laughs> Can't wait <laughs> to it. look it up. <laughs> this is The Balanced Dilemma. I'm Maura Carlin. I'm Christy Derrico. Thank you, Catherine, for Thanks joining for us. Thanks for having me.